So, Lord, we thank you that, well, you are taking us on a journey. Right now, we're on the journey. And we thank you that, Lord God, you're, um, you're teaching us to love you. And, Lord God, I pray that we would love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Pray that you would speak your word to us now, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I have um, not been excited <laughs> about preaching on this topic. It actually gives me a stomachache. I haven't been excited about preaching on this topic, but I suspect that I am to speak on this, on this topic Although some have complained that I haven't uh, spoken on this topic. In fact, some folks, uh, right after the last election, left the church saying I hadn't spoken on this topic. But I don't think I've avoided this topic. I mean, I look back at my notes and realize I've spoken on this topic lots of times. I, I don't think I've avoided the topic. I just haven't told you who to vote for. This morning, I will not tell you who to vote for for four reasons, but I will tell you who not to vote for for uh, one reason. And maybe we should begin by taking uh, a vote right now, okay? Now, there aren't as many of us here on this cold morning, and um, you can vote at home as you watch this or whatever, but I think you can imagine, you can probably imagine the results of the vote, okay? So we're going to vote right now. If you would like Jesus... And by this, I don't, you don't even have to believe that he exists, okay? But if you would like Jesus to be King of kings and Lord of lords, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand, okay? One, two, three. Okay, see now, I think, I think that's basically, that's basically uh, everyone. Now, how many of you would like Joe Biden to be the President of the United States on the, on the count of three. I'm going to have you raise your hand, okay? In your heart, one, two, three. You can imagine some hands going up. All right Now, how many of you would like Donald Trump to be President in your heart? One, two, three. Okay, see, yeah, Luke didn't hear the, the in your heart part of it, but, but okay, so but, but I imagine some of you would raise your hand, some of you would not raise your, your, your hands. And that's weird, because if Jesus is our king, right, we all raise our hand for Jesus. If Jesus is our king, he, he hasn't told us all who to vote for. I know he has the power to do that. I know he does. I know he has the power to make us listen, so maybe he wants us to figure it out. That is, figure out who should be leading the way. So So let's... Let's try, all right? When, when I'm going on a trip or I'm engaging in a task and I want someone to lead the way, I want the person that has the most knowledge about the trip or the task that I'm under, undertaking. So all things being equal, who thinks that we should elect a candidate with the most knowledge regarding the task of 
president at the count of three. One, two, three, raise your hand if you think that's true. Yeah, I think that we all think that's true, right? All things being equal, we want them to have uh, as much uh, knowledge as possible. Now, how many people think that that person with the most knowledge is Donald Trump? In your heart, one, two, three, some of you would raise your hands, right? And how many think it's Joe Biden? Some others of you would raise your hands. And because we wouldn't all raise our hand at the same time, I think that means that we know that we don't know. It seems we know that there are problems with knowing who knows. You, you know what I mean? Because number, number one, to judge a person's knowledge, you need to have more knowledge than the person you're judging, correct? That's why a, a math teacher uh, grades the papers of the math student, and it's not the other way around. So I'm not an economist or an epidemiologist or a climatologist or a political scientist, and I, I sure do not get briefings from the CIA. And even if I was one of those things, I wouldn't know how to balance it with all the others of, of those, those things. So number one, I don't have enough knowledge to judge the president's knowledge. And number two, a, a person may have all sorts of knowledge and choose uh, to use it for their own selfish purposes. So then that raises an, another question. All things, okay, here's another vote. All things being equal, who thinks we should elect the person who is most trustworthy, that is most honest for the offices of, of president? One, two, three, raise your hand. I mean, all things being equal, I, I think we agree on, on that one, right? To be honest, a person needs to believe that there is such a thing as objective truth. If you think truth is entirely subjective, then truth is just another word for what you think or, or what you feel, and there actually is no such thing as honesty or science or education or even, even society. Honesty is a person's subjective commitment to objective truth. And, and if a candidate is dishonest, there's really no point in voting for him or her because you really have no idea who him or her is. So how many think Donald Trump is most honest? In your heart, one, two, three. <laughs> and how many think Joe Biden is most honest? In your heart, one, two, three. See, I'm guessing that it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been 100% either time. Now, if you raise your hand for Biden, you probably began to recite some stories that you heard on MSNBC or CNN or maybe you thought of some promises that uh, you thought he kept while he was the vice president. And if you raised your hand for Trump, you thought of some promises that you thought Trump kept during the last four years. And you probably thought of some stories that you heard on Fox News or someplace else. Hopefully, you all have listened to each candidate. If you haven't listened to each candidate, I don't know how you could pick between them. But listen to each candidate and ask yourself the question, is this guy lying to me right now. If you raise your hand for Trump, maybe you thought something like this. I hate the way he brags and exaggerates and speaks in these grand hyperboles, but, but I love the fact that he just speaks what's on his mind without holding his thoughts under a, a, a pile, hiding his thoughts under a, a pile of political correctness, which I'm just sick of. 
If you raise your hand for Biden, maybe you thought he is awfully cautious about towing the political line, but, but that's because he wants to bring us all together rather than rip the nation apart to save his own ego. Whatever the case, don't you think you kind of have to admit that we really don't know much about secret arrangements possibly recorded on laptops found in weird computer stores on the other side of the country or threats, threats made to strippers in parking lots by people that we don't know and the intention of hearts having conversations through translators with folks in the Ukraine. I can't even judge my own heart. How am I going to judge the heart of a candidate that's mediated through all these opposing media outlets? Yet Jesus did say you'll know a tree by its fruit. And we do know that Trump has not followed through on, well, several marriages. That is, several wives haven't been able to trust him. And he has been caught on tape saying some rather unfaithful things while married to this lovely young woman that he's married to now. But on the other hand, some would say, okay, fine, but he hasn't sat idle and actively even encouraged the abortion of, of millions while pretending to be a good Roman Catholic. And that brings up another issue, doesn't it? A president might know about the way and speak some truth, but not do anything to protect life, human life. If you've been to the sanctuary for more than an hour, hopefully you realize that we profess to believe that every human life is this eternal treasure for every human life bears the very breath of God, if even in the most hideous vassals of clay. So let's vote. Let's vote again, okay? <laughs> How many think the president should be all about protecting, nourishing, and cherishing human life? One, two, three. Yeah, I think all things being equal, we all, we all want that, right? We want a president that protects human life. You see, we all think the president should be about finding the way, speaking the truth, and guarding human life. I mean, we, we agree. We all agree on the deepest, deepest level. But how many think Donald Trump would be best at doing those things? One, two, three, in your heart, right? And, and uh, uh, Joe Biden, one, two, three, in your heart. That seems to be where we disagree with who would be best at doing these things. Personally, I find it horrifying and, and more than a bit insane that in my country, as far as I understand, right up to the moment of birth, a, a doctor can kill a baby on one side of the cervix or partly on one side of the cervix and, and be paid for it. And yet a moment later on the other side of the cervix, if that doctor did the same thing, he'd be tried for murder. I mean, something is just not right with that. So I'm concerned that we've sacrificed far more babies to the gods of our own sexual desire and convenience in the clinics of this country than were ever sacrificed to Moloch in the Valley of Gehenna. And I'm also concerned that if you've had an abortion, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Moloch or Satan does not have your baby. If it was, in fact, a baby, I'm convinced that Jesus has your baby. And if you didn't, know it already, you're forgiven. 
It really matters to me that you know that. I'm convinced that Jesus has all the babies, but, but I still want the practice to stop, for I think it does tremendous damage to young women, young men, and the collective psyche of our, of our nation. But some would argue that it isn't best stopped through legislation, but through other means, including social services and health care. And some would point to statistics from various times and various places that would seem to indicate that this is in fact true. And some would say, well, even if that is true, well, it shouldn't be legal. And some would say, well, it's a decision that shouldn't be entrusted to someone like Donald Trump or Joe Biden or old guys in a legislature somewhere. Solomon wrote, you do not know how the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. <laughs> and I'm thinking Solomon is right. I really don't know when human life begins, and neither does Joe Biden or Donald Trump. You know, in Jesus' day, it was the practice to stone an adulteress caught in the act of, a, of adultery even, and, and they didn't seem to worry about a possible pre uh, pregnancy. Today, even our presidents are serial adulterers, and then they claim to care about the unborn, and you see, just the whole thing is highly illogical and unbiblical and confusing. So I am deeply concerned about unborn human life, and I'm even more concerned about human life that's already been born. Some would argue that based on terrible theology and bad intelligence, we've gotten ourselves in foreign wars or started foreign wars, particularly in the Middle East, that have resulted in the death of hundreds of thousands, if not a million, innocent civilians just since 9-11. Others would point out that respect for the sanctity of human life would most certainly include illegal immigrants and their kids. It most definitely would include other races and classes. If we think that we're more valuable to God because of our nationality or our race or our sexual preference or desires, well, we surely haven't spent much time at the foot of the cross. You know, Jesus actually never even mentions abortion in Scripture, but he talks a lot about racism. He talks incessantly about caring for the poor. It's weird to argue that our government should care about unborn babies and ignore the poor, or care about the poor and ignore all these unborn babies. And just as with unborn babies, there's a whole lot of debate about the best way to care for the poor. You know, some would argue that government intervention only creates a society of victims crippled by dehumanizing and degrading government programs. And then others would argue that that argument only hides corporate and individual greed. And then others argument that this argument, again, that argument only, only masks government agencies groping for more power. And then someone says, well, shouldn't we all just love each other? Yeah, good point, so who votes for that? Who thinks we should all just love each other, right? <laughs> But what does love look like? In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit fills the church and they share everything in common. Everything. And I would say, okay, Peter, um, that sounds like communism. Yep, sure does. 
2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul takes an offering, all right? He takes an offering, and then he explains it this way. He writes, that there may be equality. Well, dang, that sounds like socialism and those Democrats. Yep, sure does. In Galatians, Paul writes, for freedom Christ has set us free. Let us not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And Jesus tells parables about stewards and good investments. And you say, well, that sounds like free market capitalism in those Republicans. Yep, sure does. In Acts 2, they shared everything in common because they wanted to. That's free market communism. Yeah, sure is. And yet I don't think we're supposed to wait for everyone to speak in tongues before we feed the poor and care for immigrants. And now you may say, okay, Peter, okay, Peter, but think this through. If we elect Joe Biden, he could give in to the radical left. Church institutions, and this is a church institution, church institutions might be replaced by social services and political correctness could one day mandate the very renunciation of Jesus. Yup. That is absolutely correct. In fact, just about 100 years ago, that very thing happened. And one of the most Christian nations that this world has ever seen, and, and it was responsible. It was responsible, still is responsible for absolute immense suffering and a great cloud of darkness over the entire former Soviet Union and China and other places all across the globe. Now you might say, okay, Peter. Right, but if we reelect Donald Trump, he, he could so easily be seduced by fascists and racists, the radical right, why, he could start a, a war. He could even commit genocide just to soothe the wounded egos of white American males that have been disenfranchised. Yep, that is absolutely correct. In fact, just about 80 years ago, that very thing happened in perhaps the most advanced Christian and reformed culture that this world has ever seen. My dad fought in that war. In my family, Hitler is not an abstraction. I remember my dad used to say to me all the time, he'd say, Peter, pay attention, you know. That was Germany. You'd be a fool to think that couldn't happen in our country. So you may be thinking, Peter, wouldn't you tell us not to vote for Hitler? I sure hope so, if I knew that Hitler was Hitler. But it appears they didn't know that in Germany at the time. At the time in Germany, many thought their choice was literally between Hitler and Stalin. So what's worse, Hitler who kills six million or Stalin who kills 60 million? I don't know who you should vote for. I have an opinion. And I've already voted, but I don't know who Jesus is telling you to vote for. And it seems that God is not interested in telling me whatever he's telling you. I'm convinced that he's told me all sorts of things. And I got a bunch of amazing stories to prove it, but I don't think he's told me that. In fact, I found out that there are some questions, there are some questions that Jesus just not, does not want to answer in that sort of obvious kind of way. And, and yet some do say, well, God 
I heard, I heard this lady, I heard this guy say that God chose this particular candidate, and so I should choose that particular candidate. But unless I misunderstand Scripture, God chooses every candidate. Jesus Christ is, present tense, the ruler of the kings on earth, Revelation 1.5. God chose Nebuchadnezzar to sack Jerusalem and lead the Jews into exile. God chose Caesar, Pilate, and Herod, Acts chapter 4, all to play their parts, but, but that doesn't mean I should have voted for them. And if God chooses a person, well, God's vote is not dependent on my vote, right? Isn't that the whole point of God electing in the first place? It's the very idea that if God elects, he's not dependent on our election. November 30, he's not up there scratching, going, oh my gosh, I hope they make the right choice. So anyway, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for because, number one, it's illegal. But I don't care so much about that. So number two, I, I don't know who Jesus wants you to vote for. have my opinions, but I don't know who you should vote for because, well, I don't think Jesus has told me who you should vote for. And now you may be thinking, okay, okay, I get it. I get where this is going. It's because God has ordained the American democratic process as the correct means of discerning his divine will. Correct? Well, that's an interesting thought. Because actually something very close to our modern American democratic process does show up in Scripture at a profoundly critical moment. But I don't think it tells us who to vote for so much as who we should never ever vote for, and I'm not sure that it really validates the, the process. It's recorded. This is how important it is. It's recorded, because this doesn't happen with that many things. It's recorded in all four Gospels. We'll begin in Matthew and reference John. Matthew 27, 15. Now at the festival, the, at, at, at the, festival the, the feast, the Passover feast, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious, a famous prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. Now, some ancient manuscripts don't include the name Jesus, and some do. This is the NRSV, and they include the name Jesus in that translation. Jesus is really just the name Joshua, which was a common name in that day. It means God is salvation, and and the feminine noun salvation sounds just like the name Jesus, Yeshua in, in Aramaic. Uh, Barabbas most likely means son of rabbi, bar rabbi, that is son of the teacher of the law. Verse 17, so after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah, the Christ, the, the, literally the anointed. Pilate is asking, which Jesus do you want? And I think Matthew is beautifully pointing out the difference. Do you, do you want salvation through legislation? That is the law? Or do you want salvation through God's anointed? Which means something like his chosen, chosen one, his, his choice. Verse 17, so after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. In other words, they thought Jesus was first, and they wanted to be first. So they wanted to take his life and make it their own life, which is thoroughly ironic since Jesus wanted to give them his life and make them his own. 
You see, the choice kind of reminds me of the choice between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the law, and the tree of life. And on each tree, there's a Jesus. And whether or not everything lives or everything dies depends on how you take him. And how you take him depends entirely on how you see him, as dead law or as living love. Now, there's a lot there for you to ponder after you've read my read my two books on Genesis and have some time to read the notes after the sermon and sit and think all philosophically and everything. But right now, right now, just note that Pilate is calling for a vote between Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Messiah. He's asking humanity, which one do you think is salvation? What is the good and who gives you life? Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I've suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds through social media, mainstream media, I don't know how they did this, but somehow they did it, to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? All of them said, let him be crucified. Then he asked, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified, crucified, crucified. All of them. Every one of them. Picked the wrong guy. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Dot, now, now, now I get it. We should vote for Jesus. Well, here's the obviously, insanely obvious problem. He's not running for office. Remember, at the start of his ministry, Satan even tempted Jesus with making bread into stones, which would make a marvelous welfare program, miracle stunts to silence all of his critics, I mean, to gain power, and all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus said to Satan, be gone. In John chapter 6, his followers chase him, trying to make him king. And you remember what he does? He runs away. At the start of this week, Matthew 27, great crowds had lined up for Jesus as he entered the city. Great crowds on Palm Sunday chanting, Hosanna to the King of Kings. But now five days later, realizing that Jesus refuses to run for office and drive out the Romans, they begin to chant, crucify, crucify, crucify. He refuses to run for office. And yet he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And yet people don't recognize him for they don't yet comprehend love. Who is their father and the power of his word who's standing in front of them, saving them. They all vote against Jesus the Messiah. But by the end of this sixth day, Jesus, God's chosen one, King of kings and Lord of lords, will vote for each one of them. They all vote to take his life, and God votes to give his life for all. He lifts his head on the tree in the garden and cries out, Father, forgive them, because they just don't know what they do. You understand? Jesus, the Messiah, is a radically different kind of leader. 
And to even throw his name into the race feels like an abomination, probably because it is. It's the abomination of desolation that takes his place in the temple, the sanctuary of your soul. It's the imitation Christ, the Antichrist, Jesus Barabbas, salvation by legislation. So am I saying that you shouldn't vote? No, absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying remember what it is that you're voting for. Galatians 3.23, Paul writes, now before faith came, see he's talking as if faith is a person that comes to you, not a decision that you make in your head. Last time we saw that faith in us is Christ Jesus in us. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. That's the knowledge that the good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, or the idea that good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil could save you, like, like Jesus, uh, son, of, son of rabbi, or Pilate, Herod, and Caesar with all their political legislation, or the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what organized religion is. Uh, uh, religious legislation. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The law was our guardian, paedagogos in Greek. It means like child instructor or babysitter. The law was our babysitter until Christ came in order that we might be justified. That means made right by faith. Faith, hope, and love in us is Christ Jesus in us sitting on the throne in the temple of our souls. Christ is not knowledge of the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the decision to love in any and all situations. You don't make love. Love makes you, and he's making you all the time. And once love comes to reign in your heart, you no longer need exterior restraints to choose the good. Because your very nature is, is the good. And you don't need anyone to guard your freedom, for you will do what you want to do, for what you want to do is who you really are and what you will do, and that's a long conversation. But if you think you need someone to guard your freedom, you're not free. And you don't yet truly understand what Jesus means by freedom. But until Christ comes to reign in your heart, there's a paedagogos, a babysitter. In the Old Testament for Israel, God provides the judiciary branch, the legislative branch, the executive branch, all in the form of prophet, priest, and king. And as you study scripture, you realize that he's also done something like this for all other countries. But, but all these countries, all these forms, all these principalities are fallen, just as humanity is fallen. In other words, the babysitter isn't much better than the babies that it happens to be sitting, but at least for the most part, the babysitter keeps the children from killing each other and setting the house on fire till dad comes home. In the New Testament, Paul refers to these entities as the principalities and powers of world rulers of this present darkness, human entities and angelic entities. The office of the president is the office of the paedagogos, the babysitter. Now, not many people know this story, but years ago, one night, during my first marriage, my wife and I wanted to get a babysitter for our children in order that 
You know, we could just go out to dinner and celebrate our great love for one another. My wife suggested Margaret, and I suggested Janet. And then she said to me, Peter, I heard that Janet got busted for smoking pot. And frankly, she just, she rubs me in the, in the wrong way. And I said, well, honey, I know for a fact that Margaret, she doesn't care at all about her kids. And then my wife, she got a little bit steamed about it. She said, well, maybe you don't care about her kids. I mean, what could be more important than the babysitter whom we choose to watch over our children? That is a sacred task. And I said, precisely. And that's why I'm here by and forth with declaring you to be an idiot. And then she hit me. And I hit her, and, and it just broke out into this fight, and the police came, the police came, and, the, and they took away our children. And I haven't seen them since. And we got a divorce. Because we thought the babysitter was that important. And now let me say, not many of you have heard that story, because I just made it up. <laughs> I'm still married to my first wife, Susan. And we never got a divorce over the babysitter. Why? Because it's stupid. It's absurd. It never happened. And yet it happens all the time, doesn't it? If you break fellowship with another believer in Jesus the Christ because you disagree over Joe Biden or Donald Trump, is that not exactly what you're doing? We are the body of Christ. If you tear that body apart because you disagree with someone else about the best person to be employed in the office of the babysitter, I think you just crucified the Messiah because you chose another Messiah to be your salvation. You've chosen the babysitter over the word of our Father. That's idolatry. That's an abomination. That's the worship of the imitation Christ, the Antichrist. It's a sin which I think we've all committed in some way or some form, and I think it's a sin of which we, the American church particularly, need to repent. So shall we vote? Yes, yes, absolutely yes for the babysitter. I'm serious about this. We should really all get together. We should get together, go out to dinner, have discussions, argue, debate. We should investigate because the babysitter matters, but not in the way that you're tempted to think the babysitter matters. So will I tell you who to vote for? No, no, no. Number one, because it's illegal. Number two, because I don't know. And I wouldn't tell you, at least not now here in, in church, uh, for you might think if, if I did know, even if I did know, I wouldn't tell you because you might think that it, that it matters and it really doesn't matter, not in the way that you're tempted to think it matters. And let me just say, you really are being tempted to think it matters. Actually, the worse the babysitter is, the better the children of God often are. All my favorite stories come from houses governed by the worst babysitters. Did you ever think about that? 
I'm thinking about Watchman Nee, who died for Jesus in communist China. Most of all, I mean, a guy who totally affected me, Richard Wormbrand, who suffered under uh, communists and fascists in, in Romania. People like Corey Ten Boom, Maximilian Kolb, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who suffered under the Nazis. People who look like Jesus the Christ, who suffered under the Roman Pontius Pilate and the Jewish King Herod. Have you ever thought about how you would have voted that day 2,000 years ago? I mean, surely they thought that that vote really mattered. You know, the Jews believed that the unborn were sacred. The Romans not only practiced abortion, infanticide was a norm for them at that time. Communicable diseases like leprosy were an everyday occurrence for which the Jews had the most advanced regulations really in the world. Regulations which the Romans actively despised and rejected and talk about unjust wars. I mean, the Romans basically invented the concept. Rome devastated the Jewish economy with an entirely unjust system of taxation. They most definitely dabbled in racism, class warfare, and slavery. The roads into Jerusalem were literally lined with crucified Jews, their corpses hanging on, on trees, and, and in just 40 years, the Romans would utterly destroy Jerusalem. I mean, it was a life and death situation, and Jesus could have stopped it. And it appears that everyone knew it in the crowd that day. I mean, he could have literally mobilized the crowds on Palm Sunday and led a violent revolution. There were like a million Jews in, in Jerusalem for the Passover, all chanting his name just five days before. He could have led a, read a, led a revolution. It appears that's exactly what Jesus Barabbas had already attempted to do. In Luke, Luke tells us that he had led an insurrection in the city. John refers to him as a laestase. He was a political revolutionary like Simon Bolivar or George Washington. And then just so we get the point, John includes one more election that day 2,000 years ago. After Pilate calls for the election of Barabbas or, or Christ, he scourges Jesus, dresses him up as a king, and while the Jews all can't crucify, 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 he says to the Jews, shall I crucify your king? And the high priest responds, for the people, we have no king but Caesar. See, I think John is pointing out that whether it's an insurrectionist like Barabbas who leads a revolt and in in a riot in the city like the riots that are happening in some of our cities, or an emperor like Caesar or Trump or Biden, or even a high priest like Caiaphas or maybe even a religious leader like me. Listen closely to any one of them and you'll probably hear the same thing. You'll discover that they're all basically saying the same thing, offering the same promise. They'll make you a promise. They'll say that they will help you save your life. They'll appeal to the same method. They all want power. They'll take power through some form of legislation, adjudication, and enforcement. They'll speak the same motto. They will say, Rome first, Israel first. Judah first, 
The Democrats first, Republicans first, us first, which usually means me first and appeals to me first in you. In other words, a coalition, a coalition of selfishness. But now listen to God's anointed. What does he say? He says the first will be last. And the last will be first, and he who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. And what's his method? Oh, you're looking at it. He's doing it right now. He's giving up all power to reveal the judgment of love. And and he doesn't only make promises, he is the promise. In him, you will lose your life. How's that for a campaign promise? Take up a cross, follow me, you'll lose your life. In him, you will lose your life and find it. He's not the babysitter. He's the heart of your Father in heaven and the head of everything that's anything, including you. His kingdom is not of this world. He said that to Pilate, or his servants would fight. His kingdom is not of this world. But once he sits with you on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul, you will see that you are his kingdom. And you were always just one heartbeat away from an entire new creation, which is his kingdom come, his will done, on earth as it is in heaven. So, so I won't tell you who to vote for because number one, it's illegal. Number two, I don't actually know. Number three, I don't know. Uh, even if I did know, I, I wouldn't tell you, at least not in a worship service on Sunday morning because you might think it matters and it really doesn't matter in the way that you're tempted to think that it, it, it matters. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden, or any other candidate because you think that they can save you or save us, I think you just voted to crucify the one that actually does because you just cast your vote for Jesus Barabbas. Don't vote for Barabbas. But now this is also the gospel. Even though we all have voted for Barabbas, King Jesus has always and will always vote for you. And that's number four. You don't vote for the king. But the king of kings always votes for you. He lifts his head on the tree in the garden and cries, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he delivers up his spirit, the spirit that descends upon each one of us, romancing our hearts and teaching us to say, Abba, Father. And that's how he does more than fix the economy. That's how he gives you a new heart and makes all things new. And now he'd like you to join him in that task. One of the most beautiful and brilliant things that I've ever read is Fyodor Dostoevsky's Myth of the Grand Inquisitor. It's... it's, a story that one brother tells another brother in the middle of Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Ivan the Atheist tells the story to Alyosha the Devout. In the story, Jesus returns to earth in Seville, Spain during the Inquisition. He heals the sick, he touches lepers, he loves the outcast, but the Grand Inquisitor finds him and throws him in prison 
And while Jesus refuses to speak, for 12 pages, the Grand Inquisitor hurls accusations at Jesus. And the heart of all of his accusations is that Jesus refused the temptation of the tempter in the wilderness all those years before. He says, instead of seizing men's freedom, instead of taking their freedom, you gave them even more of it. He tells Jesus that if he'd only turned stones to bread, if he'd only test, impressed the critics with, you know, miraculous powers, if he'd only taken authority over all the kingdoms of the world, he would have rid humanity of this burden of love, of having to learn to love the good, to choose the good in freedom. He tells Jesus that the church, the institutional church, has corrected his work by accepting Caesar's purple, and that humanity is now thankful. In other words, humanity loves the church, the institutional church, because the church tells everyone exactly who and what to vote for. Our kingdom will come, rails the Grand Inquisitor. Tomorrow you will see obedient herds at the first sign from me hurry to heap coals on the fire beneath the stake at which I shall have you burned. Because by coming here, you have made our task more difficult. For if anyone has ever deserved our fire, it is you, and I shall have you burned tomorrow. I have spoken. The Grand Inquisitor falls silent, says Ivan Karamazov, and waits for some time for the prisoner to answer. The prisoner's silence has weighed on him. He's watched him. The prisoner's watched him. He's, he's listened to him, intently looking gently into his eyes and apparently unwilling to speak. The old man longed for him to say something, however painful and terrifying. But instead, he suddenly goes over to the old man and kisses him gently on his old bloodless lips. And that is his only answer. The old man is startled and shudders. The corners of his lips seem to quiver slightly. He, he walks to the door, opens it, and says to him, Go now, go now, and do not come back, ever. You must never, never come again. And he lets the prisoner out into the dark streets of the city. The prisoner leaves. And what about the old man, asks Alyosha Karamazov. The kiss glows in his heart, replies Ivan Karamazov. But the old man sticks to his old idea. Alyosha stood up and walked over to him, writes Dostoevsky, and kissed him on the lips. I'm saying that um, to argue about the babysitter is good if you remember that you're arguing about the babysitter. But if you want to change the world, you need something far more powerful. You need the kiss. And this is the kiss. He took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup, and he said, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. So at this point in the service, 
we invite you to come and take one of these little cups. If you're at home, tear off a piece of bread and maybe, you know, dip it in your, your juice or wine or whatever, and then this is what I want you to do. I, I want you to just concentrate on the kiss and receive the kiss. It's the kiss of your father. Receive the kiss into the depths of your being, into the very throne room in the center of your heart, and let the kiss burn you. Let it burn away your anger and your fear and your anxiety and your sorrow and your shame. And then you give that kiss to everyone you meet. <laughs> it's not the babysitter. It's the heart of your father. Amen. So, Father, we thank you that you're good. And we thank you that you're sovereign. And that you actually never left the house. We only thought you left the house. You're watching everything on video or however you work that out. And so, Lord God, if one day some descendant of some fascist Republican looks at any one of us in the face and says, don't you know that I have the power to take your life? Thank you that with all seriousness we can look back and say you would have no power over me except it had been given you from above, from my dad. And that, Lord, if some communist Democrat descendant of whoever sits on a throne and says, don't you have the power, know that I have the power to take your life, we could look at that person and say the exact same thing. You have absolutely no power over me, except that which has been given you from above. And that one is my dad, and he's good. So God, I pray that you'd forgive us for our fear. And I thank you that you give us your courage, your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let me say, if I yelled during the sermon, I'm sorry. I didn't mean, I'm not yelling at anybody. I just get, I'm yelling at me. But uh, I, hope you, I hope you get my point, because this just drives me nuts. Um, we should argue about the babysitter. So I get together with my friends, of very, I can have friends in both persuasions, and We'll argue about the babysitter and talk about this and that or whatever because it's important. It matters whether the babysitter gives the kids macaroni and cheese or pepperoni pizza. It matters to a six-year-old. I mean, it's worth talking about. But what does that six-year-old really need? The heart of his dad. And you can give that with just a kiss. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel, and you will be the gospel. Amen.